in a popular sitcom that recently ended, one of the characters is on a date and says to the other person when he mentions that he has an agreement with his mother to go to church once a year, uh, she says this, I don't object to the concept of a deity, but I am baffled by the notion of one who takes attendance. Now, this line is supposed to make us laugh, right? It's supposed to make us laugh because of this picture of, uh, of God right, dutifully taking attendance every time we show up. And, you know, while it is silly and it is kind of funny, it does, however, reflect the attitude that many have when it comes to God and worship. Right? If God is so big and holy, why does God care so much about people showing up to church? If he already knows my heart and he knows that I love him, why do I have to prove it to him by showing up to church? Now, that line of thinking is, of course, somewhat understandable. Uh, but it demonstrates what we call a low view of God. Now, a low view of God is something, uh, or a low, it's, a, it's an understanding or treatment of God that does not provide him with the respect and the honor that he deserves. For example, now let's use a human example to illustrate what a, a low view of God might look like. Uh, let's say for some, some reason, you were selected to host Queen Elizabeth at your house for dinner. If you had this crazy once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to host the queen at your home for dinner, when she rings the doorbell, would you open the door and say, Hi, Queenie, welcome to my house, and then proceed to serve her a granola bar, banana, and a cup of water for dinner? No, right? You wouldn't do that. That's disrespectful, right? And, and why? Why is it disrespectful? It's because of who she is, right? She's royalty. Now, I understand she's not the queen of America, but at the same time, right, we know that we ought to treat her with some proper respect because of who she is. And if the queen is an important person who deserves much respect, how much more does our Lord deserve all the glory, honor, and praise? While most people with a low view of God are those who do not believe in God, Christians can have a low view of God also. It doesn't matter how long you've been saved or how strong your faith is. We can all, at times, have a low view of God. Now, the reason why we sometimes have a low view of God, or the reasons why we have a low view of God, uh, they can be many. But some common reasons that, um, for why we might have a low view of God are because we don't read our Bibles, right? And so as a result, if we don't read our Bibles, we don't really know who God is. And so if we don't know who God is very well, then we're going to have a hard time understanding exactly who he is, understanding how he can be trusted. Um, we could also get influenced by other people's idea of who God is, right? We have people... At, at school at times, telling us who they think God is. We have coworkers who tell us who they think God is. And they ask you, how can you worship such a God? Another thing that can really distort our view of God, give us a really low view of God, is our trials. Trials that distort our view of God, that make him appear far, far away, that make him look really small in our eyes. Right? Those kind of things. Right, when we feel like God can't do anything, right? Those are the kind of things that make us have a very low view of God. And then, of course, there are so much more. When this low view of God occurs in our lives, it can be easy for us to back away from God, right? It's kind of like, I don't really want to have too much to do with God, so I'm just going to back away a little bit. Um, and we, we basically try to live life with God as a part of our lives, right? We just see if we can segment him off into a small part of our lives rather than having him as the central figure of all of our lives. Right? He needs to be the central figure in all of our lives. Right? We've, heard, we've heard stuff like that before, right? That it's not just God at the top of your priority list, but it's God in, uh, all the way through your priority list. In every single thing, he is a part of your priorities. Right? And, and it's true, right? Everything runs, everything in our lives runs through our relationship with the Lord. 
our relationship with our families, that's dictated by our relationship with the Lord, our relationship with our friends, our relationship with our coworkers and with, uh, with our fellow classmates, the way that you approach your job, whatever it is, you name it, everything goes through that filter or goes through that line of, of being related to God, everything. Right? Your finances, are you worried about retirement? You know, it's, it's okay for you to be concerned about your retirement, but you trust your finances to the Lord. Right? Whatever it is, God is at the center of it all. Right? He's at the center of it all and he's in it all. And even if, even if we know that our relationship with God ought to look this way, sometimes it can be really hard to live our lives as worship to our king. We kind of forget. We get distracted. We don't remember to do it. And so as we look at Psalm 99 this evening, we get a small snapshot, a very small snapshot of how great our God is and why he is deserving of our worship. Not just on not just on Fridays and on Sundays, but in every moment of our lives. And so uh, we're going to we're going to do that as uh, this evening, as we look at three reasons why Christians ought to prioritize worshiping God. Three reasons why Christians ought to prioritize worshiping God. And the first reason why Christians ought to prioritize worshiping God is because Yahweh is worthy. Yahweh is worthy. Verse one reads this, Yahweh reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. We're not given too many details about Psalm 99, when it was written, who it was written by, and, and why it was written. These are one of those psalms that uh, can stand on its own and can help us worship God, even though we're not told any of these context details. And so as we look at this opening line, we're reminded of an amazing truth. Yahweh reigns. Yahweh reigns. Why is this an amazing truth to pause and reflect on? Even though we know that Yahweh reigns as king, we often live as if God is small. There's a book out there that actually talks about that, right? It's called When People Are Big and God is Small. Now, we often live as if God is powerless to intervene in our lives or to rescue us. We might not directly challenge God's reign and existence, like those who say that the reason why they don't believe in God is because they prayed that God would make himself real to them, right? God, if you're real, please move that curtain over there. And he didn't do it for them. And we might not be like those kind of people. We can forget. We can forget that we have to trust him to work things out in our lives. If our plans and our desires are frustrated, what do we do? Do we say, like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or do we do everything that we can in our power to accomplish what we want to accomplish? We tend to fight and claw to get what we want. And no matter what it is, we'll fight and we'll claw. We'll throw whoever we mean under the bus. Right? We'll do whatever it takes to make sure that we get what we want. And then when it finally does not come through, that's when we'll sigh and say, oh, I guess God just doesn't want this for me. I guess I must, this must not be in God's will for me, for my life. That might be true sometimes, okay? That could be true sometimes. However, however, this view of God is not the greatest because it could lead to wrong thinking. What if, what if God allows you to pursue what you want because of the hardness of your own heart? He lets you go. He lets you do it. He lets you get frustrated, but he just lets you do it because of the hardness of your own heart. What if God allows you to pursue what you want and you actually get it? And you're like, yes, 
yes, I finally have what God wants for my life. When it's really what you want for your life. And then all of a sudden God takes it away. God, what happened? I thought you wanted this for me. Why is it gone? You see, God is not so easily figured out. He's not so easily figured out. We're reminded in Ecclesiastes 11.5, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Isaiah reminds us similarly in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We do not always know what God is doing in our lives, but this we do know. Our God who has a personal relationship with us and who makes that relationship known to us by revealing us, revealing to us his name, his personal name, Yahweh. He is the one who reigns. He is the one who reigns. That we know. We also know the fact that he loves us. He loves us. Now, you and I might forget that he is sovereignly reigning at times. And that he is working all things together for good to those who love him and are predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. And don't miss that last part. You guys know Romans 8.28, but don't forget verse 29. Don't forget verse 29. And you know that God works all things together for good for those who love him. But also verse 29, he has predestined for you to be conformed to the image of his son. And so if he desires for good things for your life, right? if he desires for good things for your life and you don't get them or it's hard to get them, that is part of perhaps the refining process by which God conforms you into the image of his son. And that is not to be hated. It's not to be rejected. When you run into those difficulties, it doesn't mean that God's lost control. God never loses control. He is always in control. It's not like he just takes his hands off the wheel and says, all right, I'm going to let Jesus take the wheel on this one. I ain't going to do nothing. It's not like that. It's not like that. He is always in control. Is always in control. Now, as we think about Yahweh's great power and the fact that he sovereignly reigns over the whole universe, the whole universe, mind you, not just the nations, but this whole universe, the peoples should tremble. The peoples should tremble when they consider the fact that Yahweh reigns. In Acts 17, 28, Paul tells the Athenians that in God, we live and move and exist. Were it not for God's active work in not just creating us, but also in holding the universe together, we would all cease to exist. Every breath that you and I take, every blink of the eye that you and I have is sovereignly held up by God. If it wasn't for, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that he held it up, we would all cease to live. We would all cease to exist. And that is the kind of power that should not be taken lightly. And it's for this reason. It's for this reason that the psalmist commands the people to tremble. Tremble before holy God. Have a respectful fear of God because of who he is, what he has done, what he is currently doing, and what he will do. That is the God we worship. Now we get an even Uh, more majestic picture of God's rule and reign when we see in the latter half of verse one that God is enthroned above the cherubim. Now, for those of you who have the ESV, your translation says that God sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Now, the idea here uh, could be that God's location, right? His, His throne is above, physically above the cherubim. And we see that in Ezekiel one and in Ezekiel 10. But it could also be the idea that God actually is sitting 
upon the cherubim. And we see that in Psalm 18. Now, the context doesn't really help us make a decision as to which one it is. But the main idea here is that Yahweh is in a position of authority. You see, the cherubim are not those little baby-faced angels that you see in artwork or uh, those, you know, those precious little moment dolls in the mall if they still exist. Uh, they're not, or, or like, uh, you know, in your little um, baby decoration books, they're not like those cute little, little fat chubby uh, um, angels. They're not those fat little innocent angels. Okay. They're, they're terrifying to behold. They're terrifying to think about. Ezekiel tells us that they have four faces, four wings, and they have straight legs, kind of like a cow. And they have feet like a calf's hoof that gleams like bronze. That's really bizarre when you think about it. Right, their faces, right? They have four. Their faces, one of them has a face of a lion. That's the face on the right. The face on the left is the face of a bull. There's another face like an eagle, and then the other face is the face of a man. Now, this description, it's bizarre, right? You, it's really hard to imagine it. Uh, I just out of curiosity Googled it, and it's, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess, right? But this, this description just really makes them hard to picture. But the point is this. The cherubim, like all of God's angels, are not harmless little creatures that just float around doing nothing. They are mighty angels, right? Mighty angels, strong, equipped to do whatever God tells them to do. And if they are mighty, if they are fearsome, how much more is God who is above them? Right, who is enthroned above them. How much more is God? The greatness of God, as we see, basically commands the earth to shake in recognition of how great he is. Verse two, Yahweh is great in Zion and he is exalted above all the nations, all the peoples, excuse me. So, so you, we had this picture, right? This majestic picture of Yahweh reigning and he's enthroned above or upon the cherubim. But now we see specifically that his greatness is in Zion. It's in Jerusalem. And this is one of the cool things about God because he's spirit. He's not bound to one particular location. Right? You and I are bound to one particular location. I am not here. I'm not physically here and also physically in my own home. Right? I am bound by physics to be here. Right? But that's not the way it is with God. He is both transcendent and imminent. In other words, he is both high and near, far away and near. He is everywhere present. But we see that he is especially great in Zion. He is especially great in Zion. And this is where he chooses to particularly make himself known in Zion, in Jerusalem, among his people. Now, put yourself in the sandals of the Israelites. God is high above, far away, to be respected, of course. But yet, but yet, he loves us. He loves us, and he demonstrates that love by being near to us. You have a God who is near to you. That's the God that you worship. And you might not feel his presence, but he never promised that you would feel his presence. And how many times have you ministered to a fellow Christian or talked to another Christian and they're telling you that they're struggling in their Christian walk because they feel like God is far away? Sometimes the reason why you feel that God is far, that you might feel that God is far away is because of your sin. It could be that because of your sin, you feel cut off from God. And that would make sense, right? Because God is perfectly holy. And so when there's a lot of unconfessed sin in our lives, we will probably feel as if we're very far away from God because we're not walking closely with him. However, if that's not the case, if you have confessed your sins, you are walking rightly with the Lord and you don't feel like he's near, it doesn't mean that he's abandoned you. Doesn't mean that he stopped, he stopped caring about you. It's just that he never promised that you're always going to feel his presence. 
you're not always going to feel the warmth of knowing that he's right there. And that's okay because he never promised it to begin with. If anything, that forces you to remember that you need to seek after him with all you've got, right? Not to rely on your feelings, not to rely on the feelings of closeness, but to earnestly, desperately claw after God. The fact that God loves you, that he never leaves you, he's ne- he never leaves your side, is an amazing thought that comforts us. It's an amazing thought that comforts us. Now, Yahweh's greatness is not something that is exclusive to Israel alone. This is not an exclusive privilege for being a part of the club, right? Rather, the rest of the nations recognize Yahweh's greatness too. In Joshua 2, Rahab, shelters two of Joshua's spies as they spy out the land, and she explains why she is helping them, why she is sheltering them. So um, Joshua 2, 8 to 11 reads this. Now, before they lay down, she, that is Rahab, came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you, for we have heard. Okay, get this. We have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven, above, and on earth beneath. They didn't have the internet back then. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Instagram. They didn't have Twitter. But the news of what God had done in delivering the people from Egypt, in splitting the Red Sea, in protecting these slaves who had no military background whatsoever from those two kings of the Amorites. And not only did God protect them, not only did he allow for these slaves who had no fighting experience to successfully fend off these kings, they utterly destroyed these kings. And the news of all these events went all the way up to Jericho. I should have put a map on on the slides, right? But Jericho, from Egypt to Jericho is not a small distance. It's not a small distance. They didn't have the social media or anything like that to let the news fly fast, but they heard. You can believe they heard. And that's why Jericho was terrified. They say, they said that, uh, or Rahab said, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you, but mostly because of Yahweh, your God. The nations will know this too. And even though the nations may not presently recognize the rule and reign of God, they have no excuse for not worshiping God because he has clearly made himself known to all. History is filled with the testimony of what God has done for his people. And because of how God has delivered his people and he has made these deeds known, he is exalted. He is lifted up. He rules over all the peoples, whether they recognize it and submit to his rule and reign or not. And in fact, you know, what what we see, the prophet Jeremiah, he gives us a sneak peek of what God's going to do in the future. This is why why his greatness is is known in, in Zion. Jeremiah 3, 17 says this, at that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of Yahweh. And all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of Yahweh. Nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. So you see, God's plan, what's going to happen in the future, is that he's going to draw all the nations to Zion, to Jerusalem. And they're going to worship God there in the future. By the way, this is an this is an aside, but 
If you've ever wondered why Israel, such a small country in the Middle East, right? They're surrounded by all these great countries. Why is Israel always in the news? Or why is, why is it that when something small happens in Israel, it becomes international news? It's because God has made it so that Israel is always at the center of the world's attention. Why? Because those are his chosen people, right? Salvation will be made known through Israel. That's what we hear, that's what we know from Genesis 12. I mean, sorry, yeah, yeah, Genesis 12. Or when God tells Abraham, right, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's why the focus is always on Israel. Anyway, that's, a, that's, that's an aside, that's for free, right? But um, what we know is that God is coming again. He's coming again to reign. And when he does, it's not just going to be for Israel's sake. It's going to be for the sake of the whole world, which is why verse 3, the psalmist commands the people, let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. See, in light of Yahweh's greatness, the psalmist commands the people to praise his great and awesome name. If you know who God is, if you know what he has done, it would be foolish of you to reject him. It would be foolish of you to treat him as less than he deserves. And this is not a pride thing. Okay, the problem with our pride, the problem with our pride is that we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to whether it's that showy kind of look at me kind of pride, or if it's the woe is me kind of pride when people don't love you as you think you ought to be loved or think of you as highly as you think you deserve to be thought of. God, on the other hand, he does not think of himself more highly than he ought to. Rather, he is worthy to be praised, to be honored, to be glorified by all peoples at all times because of his infinite perfections. He thinks of himself exactly as he ought to, as God, as high and above, as absolutely worthy of worship. And so when the psalmist says, holy is he, he reminds us that Yahweh is truly worthy of all worship, that he alone is truly great, that he alone is truly righteous. There is no sin found in him. His character is the very definition of righteousness. And so while angels are also holy, right? They they are described as holy. Yahweh's holiness is on a completely different level. It's on a completely different level. And that's why James writes in James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. You see, Yahweh's holiness is unparalleled. He alone is worthy of all worship, not just on the days that church meets, but in every single day of our lives, in every moment of our lives. So, brothers and sisters, must pause and consider how can we grow in our worship of God? What does the worship of God look like in our lives when things are going great? What does the worship of God look like in our lives when things are just okay? And what does the worship of God look like in our lives when things suck? When things are hard? When things are terrible? You see, in all seasons of life, whether it be our highest highs or our lowest lows, we ought to worship God because we know he's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our faith. So we bring back our friend Job here again, right? Even when we can't see, Job couldn't see. He didn't know what God was doing. Even when we can't see, we can be like Job. We refuse to curse God and die, but instead we turn to God with eyes of faith and we say, you give and you take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's with that consideration. It leads us to the second reason why we ought to prioritize worshiping God, right? It's not just because he's, he's worthy, he is, right? but it's also because he reigns with justice. Yahweh reigns with justice. Verse four, the strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Now, some people might have, 
or might be distrustful of God's power because of their experience with other people or their study of human history. We know that absolute power corrupts absolutely, but not so with God, right? Not so with God. Verse four tells us that the king has power. He has great power, but he does not use this power to advance evil. He does not use his power to consolidate power because he already has it all. He already has it all. He doesn't need to rig up some extra elections and do some constitutional amendments to keep himself in power like that oligarch in Russia. He doesn't need to make these false elections to preserve power. God already has all the power. He does not reign like any earthly ruler. Instead, he uses his power like all kings ought to have, all rulers ought to. He uses his power to bring true justice. Why? Because he loves justice. He loves justice. But what? What is justice? What is justice? Well, the psalmist elaborates this. Now, this doesn't really make sense exactly on the slide because it doesn't preserve uh, what your Bibles do. But uh, in your Bibles, the second line of verse 4 says this, you have established equity. You have established equity. Now, that word equity has the idea of being fair, being fair, being level, or conform to the standard for righteousness. And so when we're talking about biblical justice, we're not talking about justice in the same, war, uh, in the same way that the world talks about justice. God's justice is a justice that is measured according to what he has revealed in scripture as right, right? He has a particular standard of what is right. And if, or let's, let's look at it this way. He has a particular standard of what is right. Like this is a plumb line. It keeps it straight. If you veer off to the left, if you veer off to the right, it's not right. It's not justice, right? You have to stay in line with what God's definition of justice is. Another way to think about justice is that God's justice is entirely consistent with who he is, right? with who he is in his character. And this is why, brothers and sisters, again, this is an aside, this is not in my notes. This is why you need to know who he is if you're going to talk about being biblical in this life. Right? If you're going to say that you want to be biblical and that you want to honor God in all of your life, then you better read your Bibles and know who he is exactly. Know how he is. Know how he operates. Because if you don't know what the Bible says about God, then the way that you're going to think about God, the way that you're going to respond to God, is not going to be in line with what standard that God has given. It's going to veer to the left. It's going to veer to the right. It's not straight. God defines what is right. God defines what is true. There is no partiality with God. He is absolutely fair in all things. He is fair in all things. Now notice that in the second and third lines in verse four, again, it's only going to show up in your paper Bibles. It's not going to show up on the slides. But in the second and third lines of verse four, you have the word you leading that line. And we can't see it well in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's better translated as you yourself. You yourself. God establishes equity by himself. He operates with equity by himself. He doesn't need our help to establish righteous justice and righteousness among his people. He acts in justice and righteousness among his people because he alone is completely righteous. He already is. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our help. And therefore, verse 5 we get this call again, exalt Yahweh our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Now, the idea of exaltation is, again, this picture of lifting up, right? Lifting up. And as we treat Yahweh as he deserves to be treated, as we worship as he deserves to, uh, as he deserves to be worshipped, we come to the realization that Yahweh doesn't operate on the same plane as we do. He is not exactly the same as we are. He is much, much, much greater. And as a result, we must lift him up higher in the way that we think about him. Or we treat him with reverence, with awe, and with respect. 
Now, when you look at the second line of verse five, you're going to see that not only are we commanded to exalt God or to lift him up, we're also commanded to worship him. Now, what does it mean to worship God? Have you ever thought about that? Or what does it mean to worship God? The idea of worship is actually a picture to prostrate oneself right, or to bow down. But it's not just a, it's not just a bow down at the, at the waist, right? It's not just a hinging, and I'm not going to do this next one, right? But, but it's about prostrating yourself, right? Dropping to your knees and face down before the Lord. That, that's the kind of worship, that, that's, the, that's the kind of picture that worship brings up. Where we bow ourselves down in complete submission to Yahweh. So when we are in the process of exalting God, we're also in the process of lowering ourselves lowering ourselves. This is similar to the idea of John 3.30. When John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. Right? He's recognizing uh, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the, the sins of the world. So that's what he says. Now, remember what I said in our last section. For God to require us to worship him and give him glory is not pride because he deserves it all. And he alone is worthy of all worship because of who he is. And when we worship God and lift him up, when we recognize that we must get ourselves out of the way, that we must die to self so that nothing competes against the place that God rightly deserves in our lives and in the lives of every single person who's ever existed. Right? That's what we want to do. That's what we're aiming for. So when we worship at God's footstool, when we are lowering ourselves before God as we lift him up, this is a symbolic action that indicates not only the worthiness of God, but also our willingness, our willingness to subject ourselves to him, to submit ourselves to him, right? to do what he says. You call him Lord, but do you treat him as Lord? Right? You call him Lord, but do you treat him as Lord? Or is it, are these just the words that you say with your lips, but in your hearts and in your actions, you just don't do it at all. You just do whatever you please. And if you say, I love God, and you say, I love God, do you really? Elder Victor Kwong, he gave me a little wood plaque that I have in my office still. It says these words. It says this. You came to worship God, but do you know him? Those are cutting words, aren't they? You came to worship God, but do you know him? I fear that some of you do not know him. I fear that some of you do not know him. You, all, you say all the right things. You do all the right actions. You look the part, but you don't actually know. See, God knows the heart. God knows the heart. He can actually tell whether you love him or not. He can actually tell whether you mean it when you say that you've repented of your sins, that you will follow after him. He knows. He knows. He knows whether we actually want to worship him in spirit or truth or not. So if you find yourself in that position where you know that you do not actually love God, that you're just playing the church game, that you've got your church clothes and your church routine down, but in your day-to-day -day life, you aren't actually a believer. You live for yourself. You operate for your own pleasure, and I beg you, repent of your sin today, knowing that you have a God who loves you enough that he sent his only son to die on the cross for your sins, that when you believe in him, you might be forgiven of all your sin. I urge you, I beg you, repent of your sin today before it is too late, because our God, our God he reigns. He reigns with absolute justice. And when we say that he reigns with absolute justice, what that means is that he's going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with sin. 
He's not going to let any sin slide by. For Christians, all of our sin has already been paid for by Christ. But for those of you who are with us this evening who might not be a Christian, your sins have not been paid for by Christ. And if you want justice, you'll get it. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. You earn death with every act of rebellion, with every thought of rebellion. You earn yourself eternal separation from God. You earn yourself the wrath of God poured out upon you for all eternity because the weight of your sin is infinite. And so the just punishment the just punishment of your sin is infinite. When you say you want justice, God will give it to you. He will. But what kind of justice do you want? The justice where his righteousness is imputed on you, it's given to you? Or do you want the justice where he pours out his wrath upon you for your rebellion? Our God is holy. He reigns in absolute justice because his holy character impacts the way that he operates among us. And so because of that, we worship him. We sing praises to him. We show him honor. We treat him with respect, all because we know that God is worthy. He is perfectly consistent with himself and he can be trusted. And because he can be trusted in all things, we know, uh, or yeah, we, we, we know that we can worship him Without any reservation. And so that leads us, though, to the third reason. And this is a glorious reason. The third reason why Christians ought to prioritize worshiping God in our lives, and that's because Yahweh is faithful to forgive. Yahweh is faithful to forgive. Verses 6 and 7. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of the cloud. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. So here, the psalmist brings to our minds three godly examples of men who serve the Lord on behalf of people. Now, uh, we don't exactly know why these men were chosen, but um, at least specifically, but we kind of get a hint later. Now, um, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, they're prominent men in Israel's history. And when the, and when the psalmist says here, they called on God's name, right? this is the idea of they were, uh, they were praying to God. Right? They were praying to God on behalf of the people. So they asked God for forgiveness on behalf of the people. And there were times when God answered their prayers. And there were times where God answered their prayers directly. And for these guys, uh, he answered their prayers directly. Sometimes for other saints, he didn't always answer their prayers directly. He would send a messenger. But with these men specifically, God would answer their prayers directly. Now, verse 7 shows us what this relationship between God and these men looked like. When God answered Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, he spoke to them personally. And they responded by keeping his testimonies and statutes. They made his word known. And they obeyed his word, too. Right? Not only did they tell other people what God's word said, but they obeyed it. They did it. Now, obviously, that reference to the pillar of cloud primarily relates to Moses and Aaron because God showed himself to them uh, and the people of Israel in a pillar of cloud when he was leading them out of Egypt. Um, and uh, Samuel is, is uh, listed here. We don't have time to go through it. Uh, but Samuel is listed here because his ministry is similar to them. Um, just some cross-references for you later. 1 Samuel 12, 6 to 11, Jeremiah 15, 1. Samuel is actually described as being in the same line of ministry, the same kind of ministry as Moses and Aaron. So in that sense, right, in this kind of looser sense, he was also spoken to uh, from the pillar of the cloud. Let's look at verse 8. O Lord, our God, you answered them. So they cried out, they called out, God answered them. You are forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. And this is, ama is an amazing verse for us to consider because it shows us Yahweh's faithfulness in multiple ways. It shows us that he was faithful to answer their prayers. Right? He gave them an answer for everything that they said or asked for. And he was also faithful to forgive sin. Right? Every time they confessed sin, he forgave them. That's a wonderful 
new, that's, that's a wonderful uh, fact for us to, to rejoice in, the fact that God always forgives us of our sin when we ask for forgiveness. But we also see a different aspect of God's faithfulness too, when, he, when it says here that he is an avenger of their evil deeds. Now, um, what we're talking about here, when God is an avenger of their evil deeds, is that God, he is, uh, he allows, so he forgives, right? But he also allows for us to experience the consequences of our sin as well. Or you can be forgiven uh, of what you've done, but sometimes there are consequences that follow. Sometimes there are consequences that follow. And this is significant because it shows us that even though Moses, Aaron, and Samuel had a personal relationship with God, one that was way better than the average person or even some of the, their peers, because right, he answered them directly, even though they, they had that relationship with God, God did not treat them with any partiality. God did not treat them with any partiality. And they might ask for forgiveness for their sins, but they still had to deal with their consequences. Or you think about it in terms of um, Moses and Aaron. Right? Moses and Aaron, they sinned before God. Moses had multiple instances where he didn't trust God. Right? There was one where God told Moses to speak to the rock so that he'll provide water. And what does Moses do? He slaps the rock with his stick and says, bring out the water. And God said, what do you hit the rock for? I didn't tell you to hit the rock. Um, you know, there, there, are other, there are other things too. Um, for instance, Aaron and the golden calf, right? Aaron knows who God is. He knows that they're not supposed to make any idols, but yet when people say, we don't know what happened to Moses, Aaron, make us an idol so that we can worship. He, he makes the idol and he says, behold, Israel, you're God. And it's a golden calf. This is kind of like, Aaron, you're not supposed to do that. That's commandment two, no idols. That's commandment two, no idols. And what were their consequences? They didn't get to go to the promised land, right? They walked all the way up to, uh, to the edge of the promised land. Moses actually got to see the promised land from afar. But God said, because of your sin against me, because of your rebellion, you don't get to go in. And there are still consequences. There is forgiveness, yes, but there are still consequences. David sees the same thing. Right? David sins by committing adultery with Bathsheba, and then he has Uriah killed to cover it up. He, you know, he brings Uriah home to make it seem like he was with his wife, and then he kills him to cover it up. And eventually, David repents. Right? You know that. David repents of his sin. But God doesn't remove consequences from David. One of the consequences was that David's son with Bathsheba, the one that was conceived because of the adultery, that son was not allowed to live. But not only that, Yahweh says, because of what you've done, because you have allowed for the reproach of the nations to fall on my kingdom, the sword shall never depart from your house. And we see that the history of the Davidic line is absolutely bloody, brother killing brother. Now, just in case I run into danger of emphasizing too much on the consequences of sin here, the main point here for sure is the fact that God forgives sin, or God forgives sin. And even though he allows us to experience the consequences of our sin as a form of loving discipline, we're still forgiven. And we're still forgiven. God lovingly disciplines us as a father so that we know what is right and what is wrong. We see that in Hebrews 12, that God's discipline in our life, it hurts. It's not fun, but he disciplines us because he, he wants to show us what is right and what is wrong. He wants to train us in righteousness so that we don't do the things that our flesh wants. First John 1, 9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Your sins are forgiven. Yes, you might experience consequences and you might not be able to escape them, but your sins are forgiven before God. Therefore, we read verse 9, exalt the Lord our God, exalt Yahweh our God, and worship at his holy hill, for holy is Yahweh our God. Now, verse 9 is very similar to verse 5, and the psalmist does this on purpose. He's signaling the end, but he's also giving this as a fitting reminder of what this entire psalm was about. And to reemphasize why this psalm was written, it's to exalt 
Yahweh our God, right? To encourage us to exalt Yahweh our God. We are encouraged to worship him and to submit ourselves to him in all things. Why? Because he has proven time and time again that he is worthy of our worship. He has proven himself faithful to rule in justice. He has proven himself faithful to forgive us all of our sins. No sin will he not forgive from those who love him. He will forgive all of those sins. And his faithfulness to forgive us our sins is the very reason that we can sing, oh, blessed assurance, I found in him. I will not be shaken. I will not be moved. His faithfulness to forgive us our sins is the very reason we can draw near to him and we can sing songs of worship. So praise the Lord. He truly is great. Well, this evening, we had the opportunity to explore three reasons why Christians ought to prioritize worshiping God in our lives. Yahweh is worthy of our worship. And this alone is reason enough for us to worship God continually in our lives, right? to have a high view of him and to strive to continue to remember him in every aspect of our lives. However, we also are reminded to, uh, to worship Yahweh because he reigns with absolute justice. He loves justice because he because it is rooted in his character. So we can be sure that he's never going to change the standard on us. Right? His justice is perfect. It's unchangeable. There's no sliding goalposts. And finally, we are encouraged to worship God because he is faithful to forgive us our sins. Now, we can all at times slip into having a low view of God in our lives. But I pray that our study this evening was an encouragement to you all to remember who he is, right? How great he is, how much he loves you. So let us not be a people who only worship God when it's convenient. Let us be a people who strive with all of our lives, with all that we got to act or to live our lives in an act of worship. Remembering that a part of our worship is exalting him, right? Lifting him up in our minds and submitting ourselves to him. And may our Lord receive all the glory and all the honor that is due to him from us. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for your word. We're grateful for how you have helped us see how worthy you are of worship. We pray that you would exalt yourself in our minds so that we would treat you as holy, so that we would worship you as holy, and we would honor you as holy. Help us, Lord, to live lives of worship so that in everything, you will be pleased. We know it might be hard, and we pray that you give us the endurance. We give that you would give us the strength to do what is right. It's what we need, Lord, is your help to do what is right. Because our, our minds are willing, our spirits are willing, but our flesh is weak. So we pray you help us, Lord. Help us to grow in our knowledge of you and our love for you so that we can worship you with all that we got. In your sons, let me pray. Amen.